At the outset, I want to offer a construct from my friend Henrik Grappe of the Church of Sweden. He says that any discussion about climate change should have three empty chairs in the room, one for future generations, one for all other species, all non-human life, and one for the poor and marginalized in our world today. A moral framework for climate change must be consistently accountable to those three subjects. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. Many thanks to Corinna Gore for helping us to set a moral framework for our conversation today. In today's episode, unexpected conversations in coal country and a man whose passion is teaching Sunday school classes on climate change. But first, let's take a small detour. We spent about a month on the road gathering content for the season, a journey that took us all over the eastern half of the United States. Do you mind turning the music down for a quick second? Because I have the recorder out. Can you turn it off real quick? So where are we right now? We just made it to Tennessee. We are outside of Roanoke. Almost in West Virginia. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're in Chicago. On a bus. On our first train ever. We're in Virginia. Somewhere in Virginia right now. In? <laughs> the... What's it called? Uh, I Don't. was not paying attention to which way we came in. We have been driving for 11 hours. I think we came from the left. Yeah. Ah. Just for the record, this highway is crazy right now. Just got off a train. It's 6.20 a.m. Our estimated time of arrival is approximately... Late. Also, wait, did you turn the, lights, the headlights off? Slash, how do I turn them on again? I'm hungry! Open out some veggies! Did you sleep? I did actually. That was pretty good. Did you sleep? A little bit. I think we'll be fine by the seat of our pants a little bit this week. Oh. <laughs> New day has arrived. Okay, enough of this. One of our first stops was McDowell County, West Virginia, which is where we'll begin today. Could you just tell us uh, your name and where we are? Linda McKinney, L-I-N-D-A, M-C-K-I-N-N-E-Y, and I'm director of Five Loaves and Two Fishes Food Bank, located in Kimball, West Virginia. And uh, who's I'm this? Just, I'm Bob. That's <laughs> <Just> Bob. <laughs> just, just, uh, my name's Bob McKinney. I'm, I'm the uh, fellow what <laughs> fixes the stuff here. Anything that, He's uh, the maintenance needs, guy. <laughs> anything that needs repaired. We felt right at home when we walked into the warehouse. Linda and Bob greeted us with enthusiastic hugs and a handshake. They make quite the pair, Linda with her purple hair and startling laugh, and Bob with his gentle demeanor and mustached grin. So how often do you uh, give out food? Our large distribution is once a month, and um, that's the Saturday. We either do the third or the fourth Saturday of each month. Because the last nine days of the month, individuals have have used up all of their benefits, mm. and so it's difficult for them to make it that last week of the month. How many people do you have come through? Uh, in a given month, if we have the food, we can do anywhere from twelve to 1,500 individuals wow. a month. 
Bob and Linda are small town celebrities at this point. They've been featured by Mike Rowe and Anthony Bourdain, and now by us. This, okay, this Friday, they'll, they'll start pulling up about 3 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And they bring their picnic baskets, they bring their McDonald's, uh, their Kentucky Fried Chicken, they bring their kids. They wait mm -hmm. till the kids get off school, bring the kids, mm -hmm. and they'll come to the porch. And they play uh, Uno, they'll play <laughs> yeah. uh, checkers. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. We watch them <laughs> on the cameras. And they just come and make a big party of it. And they sleep <laughs> on the parking lot. And then we come the next morning. We're usually here by 6 or 7. Okay. And then about 9 o'clock, we open up and we give them a number. We can tell how many, by the food we get, we can tell how many people we're going to serve. Oh, okay. So we give them a number. And then they go down uh, to the church right around the corner. And they have breakfast. Oh, uh, nice. The church does the a, church a community, yeah, a community breakfast, and then they come back, and at eleven o'clock, we start distributing the food. The McKinneys, like many others in the county, remember a time when there wasn't nearly as much need. In 1950, McDowell County had a population of almost 100,000. Now, less than 20,000. Of all the counties in the United States, McDowell has the highest rate of drug-induced deaths at almost 10 times the national average. And where does McDowell County rank in life expectancy? Dead last. But it wasn't always that way. Enter Randy Green, the longtime McDowell resident and pastor who we heard from in our first episode. You know, when I was growing up, like up this bottom down here, up along this road down there, was houses all over that side of the hill as well, and was houses all over this hill, and there was people out everywhere all the time. And like in Norfolk and, and Welch, you couldn't get through them little towns. There was always people out, all the time. Welch used to have stoplights in town to help with the traffic. And Randy told us he remembers when the stoplights were replaced with stop signs, a sign of how the downtown area had changed. And the sidewalks were crowded, but there was every kind of shop and store that, that you can imagine. You know, at one time, down here in this little town, Norfolk, they said there wasn't a thing that you could buy in New York that you couldn't buy down here. The county thrived in the first half of the 20th century, propelled forward by our nation's insatiable desire for McDowell's most valuable resource, coal. My family came here in 1913. Uh, my grandfather came here from Italy. Um, came here to strike it rich in the coal fields. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, my whole family, my dad had 13 brothers and sisters, um, and we were a very large Italian family. Um, so we know basically everybody from generation mm -hmm. to year. And he was born and raised here too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, my granddaddy, granddaddy owned his own coal mine. It was a small mine. And, uh, oh, wow. So, you know, it, it's um, everything has a history to it, and, and most of it relates back to coal mine. Coal is interwoven into everything in McDowell County. Even now, years after the coal boom, it is the primary source of both income and tension for the county residents. I just walked in the office over there one day where I, it's the same mine, Pinnacle, but it was owned by somebody else. And the superintendent grabbed me and said, uh, you gonna come back? And I said, well, I said, I don't know. Let's talk salary, you know, right like that. And I said, I really don't want to go back to coal mines. And uh, about a half hour later, he called me back in there and, and he said, well, uh, they want you to come back. He said, uh, how does $96,000 a year sound? I said, I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> and I said, now, Russell, don't, don't hire me back and lay me off. I got a job now. And he said, oh, I'm not laying the maintenance woman off. And six months later, they shut the mines down laid everybody off. And I went 18 months unemployed for the first time in my life. $96,000. There are no other jobs in McDowell County that will pay that much. And there's the catch-all. Mm -hmm. 
they, uh, my son works on coal trucks. He's a mechanic, on, and he works on coal trucks. If they weren't running coal, he wouldn't be working, mm -hmm. or he'd have to leave to work. Uh, my son-in-law works in the mines. He doesn't work on the strip mines, but he works in the deep mines. My dad retired from the railroad. Without the coal running here, the, the railroad wouldn't have been working either. Everything around here has got something to do with coal. It is sad. It's a, but what are you going to do? It's it's. Uh, if you ask, in other words, you want work here, you want jobs here for people, and then they come in and do this, and that creates jobs. What are you going to say? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, to say, well, I didn't want that kind of job. You give people a job that didn't have one. So what do you do? Hurts in one way and helps in another. Mm -hmm. So. This almost feels like some diabolical would-you-rather scenario. Would you rather have a well-paying job that takes 10 years off your life and ruins the mountainsides you grew up on, or a minimum wage job at one of the five fast food restaurants in the entire county? If you could have like a, just a gift granted from the state government or the federal government, what, what is something that would help? Jobs. Yeah. Jobs, retraining um, individuals. I totally believe, you know, uh, anywhere, just not McDowell County. Um, if you keep your hands busy, your yeah. mind won't wander to where it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. That's that's the way I was taught. That's why we always had gardens and, mm -hmm. and always did household chores and things of that sort. People here are unemployed. And it, it's there's a breakdown in families. Um, and drugs are the main problem here. Yeah. Uh, it would be jobs uh, for some company or someone to come in and train our people and uh, retrain them from coal mining or uh, coal mine dependent jobs. Mm -hmm. That would be my wish. Okay, I have, I have two questions. Yeah, go Okay, for it. so, um, controversial question, maybe. Um, just so, because I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious and I am stuck in one community that talks about climate change in a very specific way. Um, how is it, do you hear it talked about or how do you hear it talked about in this community? You and don't. Don't. You don't. Um, uh, if, I, if I can add to that, the reason it's not talked about because uh, uh, the people get alarmed because if we start talking about climate control, that means they're going to take our jobs away. Mm -hmm. The people here, and if you talk to them and you talk to them one-on-one -on -one where it's not broadcasted out, they will tell you they'd like to see some type of climate control if it didn't affect our jobs. Yeah. I, and, I, and I totally understand it. it it is a serious thing, yeah. but don't blame it all on coal. Yeah. It's not just coal, okay? And I know, well, he says that because he's an ex-coal miner and I still don't deal with it. But it's a fact. I believe in climate control, but there's a way to do it without having to strangle the coal miner. And, uh, you know, it's uh, automobiles. Uh, we can't do away with them. But there's got to be a way to take care of it, you know. We've got to work out together to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if we had rapid transit, it'd be hard to do in these mountains. 
<laughs> but some type of rapid transit. But they're doing something now that we never thought could happen. There's buses running all the time picking yeah. people up here. Oh, really? yeah. yeah. Through 50, like down 52? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. We have that, that transit. Yeah comes through the bus. What's the route? Like Bluefield to... It'll stop anywhere. Yeah. You know, actually, when if you'll follow, it's like a school, it'll stop anywhere. The citizens of McDowell County are going to need to be creative in the years ahead. Coal's not coming back, and climate change is making sure of that. But luckily, there are people working on creative solutions, like the bus line. And maybe not surprisingly, a lot of them seem to revolve around the McKinney's. And then our son Joel is the agriculture guy here. So. Yeah. Yeah. It just... We just all pull together to make it work. So is that his garden right off? That's know? his uh, greenhouse. He does yes, a hydroponic yeah. because of the yeah. soil here. Oh. oh. Mm. What about the soil? Well, we've had so many floods and so much mine runoff here that you have um, a high content of lead in your soil mm. and you uh, have a high arsenic. Mm -hmm. And so he, he just finished Penn State. He just graduated. Oh, um, So he has a degree in... Uh, business act okay and he's building grow rooms in welch elementary uh, this is his second year uh, but he's teaching them every grade he's teaching them uh, hydroponic growing as part of their science curriculum yeah. too on yeah. a small scale so like just like fish tank size no or... no oh, you wow. should see what he's built wow. out of big blue he has these big blue barrels like a rainbow and he okay. cuts them in half and he builds them up Oh, that's They're nice. almost like a feeding trough. Sure. Uh -huh. yeah. And he's doing aquaponics. Go yeah. have fish in there. Yeah. And then they'll have yeah. float beds. That's on top. awesome. Mm -hmm. And they, the they grew it last year. They did this last year. And they had a, a farmer's market in the school. And the kids, the public came in and was buying all the lettuce up. And the kids ran <laughs> out of lettuce. They grew uh, like uh, 15 different types of lettuce. Wow, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Did he start a farmer's market too? I saw a sign, yes. uh, sign out there. Downtown yeah. Welch. The first downtown. ever farmer's market in yeah. McDowell County. Wow. That's awesome. And that's in downtown Welch. It finished yeah. uh, last weekend. was the last weekend for him. It's unlikely that hydroponics in a farmer's market alone will provide an adequate alternative to coal jobs. It's hard to know what could, but that doesn't seem to deter the McKinney's. They're always looking for a new project, and the farmer's market is just the start of it. When we see a need, we just sit down and say, okay, what can we do here? I'm going to develop this program or develop that program. And it just, as the community has a need, we try to step up and provide. We have a place for people to meet. Uh, we, we have dinners here. We feed people. Uh, we have uh, children's activities. We have carnivals in the summertime. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, in the wintertime, we do uh, uh, socks, hats, gloves, things of that sort. Uh, in the summertime, we have a school distribution. We do backpacks. We do shoes. It's just like whatever the need is, we try to develop a program for that. Mm -hmm. And then we do emergency services. Uh, we do um, an infant outreach, clothing, diapers. Mm -hmm. uh, we do hygiene outreach, uh, anything that you would need for your body. So we, we basically have everything here except money. You know, we can't pay your bills, pay your car payment, or give you gas money. Right. Uh, but we can help your body. In the past, Bob has worked with inmates at the local prison, and now Linda's working on a drug response program. They've even held worship services on the front porch of the food pantry, a throwback to the days when Bob was a Methodist pastor. You know, I, I preached for years, and I was preaching trying to... I finally come down to the fact that there's two... Jesus told us when said right now, I'm going to preach at you. <laughs> if we just love and have a servant's heart. 
that's the two key, key things that Jesus taught us to do. And people don't listen to that. They listen to all this, well, you know, the Ten Commandments, and I'm, it's there. But the thing of it is, if we just listen to what Jesus told us, mm -hmm. just, you know, have faith, love one another, and have a servant's heart. Mm -hmm. And as long as you do that, then you can't go wrong. That's what we base our ministry on. If you just do what Jesus did, he walked the streets, the roads, yeah. he loved the unlovable, he touched the untouchable. And that's what he calls us to do. This isn't the conversation we were expecting to have. Where I'm from, the coal miners are the bad guys. But more and more, I'm just thinking about how climate change will affect these communities, not just through natural disasters, but also through the real economic transition that's going to need to happen for this country and our world. We can't keep living with coal-powered electricity, but the people here, they need jobs. I don't have the answers for this one. We admired Bob and Linda's dedication to their community and were drawn to their understanding of discipleship. I often wonder what discipleship would look like if we expanded our community to include the three empty chairs Krenigor mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Future generations, all non-human life, and the poor and marginalized in our world today. But the interviews we had in McDowell County seemed to complicate things even further. I didn't grow up in West Virginia. My future career isn't tied to the coal industry, and to be blunt, I benefit from McDowell County's reliance on coal. So should I be held more accountable to those three empty chairs? The week before, we'd had a conversation that addressed some similar questions. I was, I was big on Sermon on the Mount growing up. Um, so then Matthew, I also just for selfish reasons had a bias for the Gospel of Matthew, <laughs> just because I thought it was great that I was the first Gospel. Um, uh, two levels of hubris there. but. <laughs> Meet Matthew Groves, a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee. Matthew has a double major in physics and religious studies from the College of William and Mary, a pairing that he's continued to pursue. Even though he'd just gotten married the day before, Matthew was happy to sit down with us in the Divinity School Library. So I grew up on the campus of a Virginia Baptist boarding school. So all my parents' friends were teachers. Um, all my friends were teachers' kids. So education's always been a big, a big role in my life. I was, I was a good student, and I've taught a little bit myself. So now, what I now my primary 
goal is I'm, a, I'm currently a seminary student, but at the same time, I'm an intern at a church, and I teach a bunch of science and faith Sunday school classes at random churches in Middle Tennessee and also in Eastern Virginia where I was in college. So I feel like I've been able to use my background growing up in a school environment to help communicate some things that don't always get communicated well. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, it seems like there's a gap in a lot of cases between science and faith in, in those contexts especially. How do you work on bridging that gap as someone who is maybe an adamant believer in both, I could say? Um, yeah, how do you work on, on bridging that gap and how do you work on building trust in those settings yeah um, it's hard first off it's really hard when I tell people I talk about science and faith it's like politics and religion are the two most confrontational things in society and I have to talk about both of them all the time it's easier for me for a few reasons than it would be for other people um, one because I have the same background as a lot of the people I'm talking to so my dad went to Southern Baptist Seminary and I grew up in rural Appalachia and I went to Sunday school as a kid, and my parents were deacons, and I went to campus ministry when I was in college. So I have a lot of the same social markers as the people I'm talking to, which makes it easier. Uh, science and faith are two massive ideas in society, and you're not going to fundamentally shift one person's viewpoints on one of their biggest issues in 10 minutes. So you preserve, whenever possible, you preserve a friendship, preserve a relationship, and you talk to people over time. That's how, that's how I change my mind on things, is mostly through prolonged conversations with people I respect. Have you seen this done poorly, in, especially in a church setting? <laughs> I have only seen this done poorly, maybe? No, that's, that's, not, <laughs> that's not very charitable, because um, I had a great church background myself, and my, my pastor and my parents were great role models for me in, in this sort of thing. But in general, yeah, there's a reason why there's a perception that science and faith don't get along well. And it's because it's done poorly so often. I would um, maybe volunteer a little bit there and say I think it's partially the church's fault. I think the church is more at fault than science is in the science and faith conflict that kind of pervades our time. Um, I think the church needs to get it together a little bit. That's, that's the way I would phrase it. Matthew isn't afraid to take his combined passion for science and faith into Sunday schools. Already, at just age 25, he has led over 40 Sunday school classes, primarily to youth and young adults. And the most common topic on the docket? Climate change. Okay, so little experiment here. Pretend we yeah. are we're in a Sunday school class and we are five and six years old. Five and six, okay. We're, well, we're like, young. we're super young. Mm -hmm. So I've never done five and six year olds. Actually. Okay, where do you, you usually start? Sixes? Or what's, the, what's the youngest you've done? Seventh grade is the youngest. Seventh grade. Okay, let's yeah. start there. Seventh grade. Um, I would say, okay, there's two reasons we need to care about this. One is for God, and one is for people. The reason we should care about this for God is that God gave us the earth, and it's a present. And when people give you presents, um, it's your responsibility to take care of them and to understand them as best you can. Like, how would... How would your parents feel if they gave you a present and you destroyed it right off the bat? Um, when I was a kid, my mom gave me a present that it was a little uh, Lincoln Log style building cabin. I liked math. I liked building. She wanted me to be an architect. It was a great present. It was like an objectively good call by mom. And I just thought it was stupid. And I told her it was dumb and I threw it away. And it hurt my mom's feelings really bad. So I think that's how God feels when we destroy the earth. Two, we should care about this for people. 
Because when we destroy the earth, the people who get hurt the most are the people who don't have money, people who don't have the ability to move. If their house gets wrecked, they don't have the money to just get up and move. Um, and the people who are going to get hurt worst by how we're treating the planet are the world's poorest people who can't do anything. How would you feel if your house went underwater and there's nothing you could do about it? Or a drought hit your region and you just suddenly didn't have food to feed your family. So we should do it on behalf of God because it's our responsibility to take care of things God gave us. We should do it on behalf of people because it's not fair that people are going to get hurt. It's not their fault. When we were doing some research for our interview with Matthew, we were reading the climate change guide he's put together on his website. In his conclusion, he says something fascinating, this phrase, liberal denial. In his words, denial is not an exclusively conservative problem to the chagrin of many environmental activists. Liberal denial comes in the form of believing that you can have the benefits of fossil fuel level consumption without having to deal with the side effects. So the, the term I use is that um, denial is equal opportunity. Conservative denial gets more attention on climate change because conservative denial of climate change basically amounts to saying that I don't believe this science for one reason or another. And it's usually not because the person has spent years and years studying atmospheric chemistry and the findings of the IPCC and has decided that they reject the evidence. So conservative denial kills me because it, it ends up saying that science is a buffet and I like modern medicine and I like technology and I like these million dollar, these thousand dollar supercomputers we carry in our pockets, the iPhones. And I really like being able to travel and I really like space and I love all these things that come with the modern scientific revolution, but I don't like climate change science. So I'll take a big scooping of all these things and I'm, I'm going to toss that one. Science isn't a buffet. You can't pick and choose what you want. Um, so the church needs to deal with that reality. That's conservative denial. Then, on the other hand, coming from a very rural environment myself, and then going to college in a somewhat larger town, and now going to seminary in Nashville, where there's like a pretty liberal millennial vibe, and you have all these people who vote Democrat and drive Priuses and feel like they're doing their duty on climate change. And they're even a little uppity about it sometimes, about, oh, sometimes, these, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. sometimes, yeah. And just to be clear, we've been there ourselves too, plenty of times. Yeah, and they, they, they look around and they say, oh, these, these, these dumb Trump voters, why can't they just believe in science and yada yada. They say all these things. But then they go to Bermuda once a, once a year, and the great irony is that their personal footprint is almost certainly higher than the average co-worker where I'm from. Matthew asks us a question. What's the number one factor that determines personal carbon footprint? It's not religious perspectives. It's not geography. It's not race, religion, anything. It's income. So your personal income determines your personal carbon footprint more strongly than anything else. And so you have all these kind of well-to-do liberal millennials in the cities, and their personal carbon footprint is higher than people where I grew up who don't even believe in climate change. Uh, it's this great irony. Matthew's words struck home for us, but he wasn't finished dishing out challenges. In the next hundred years, some of the biggest issues in society are going to be science-related. 
like climate change, artificial intelligence, bioethics, they're science terms. The church needs to speak science if we want a seat at the table and if we want to be a relevant participant in society. And it kills me that the church is, broadly speaking, uh, my part of the church is on the wrong side of climate change. When I think the church as a whole can provide a moral foundation to the reason for climate action instead of being like a utilitarian consumer answer that kind of buys into the current consumer status quo. I think the church has a lot to offer on this situation. So it kills me that we aren't currently taking advantage of opportunities to get involved and provide, bring our experience to bear on this issue. That's that's my angle, that's my goal. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. Really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. Yeah, glad to be here. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also a photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music by Luke Mullet. And transitions music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. Also a special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, which is sponsoring this project. And this week's shout out goes to Justin Blanchard, who hosted us in Nashville, Tennessee. Justin and his girlfriend Anna gave us the whole Nashville tour while we were there, including a visit to the Opryland Hotel, a picnic in the Shelby Bottoms Greenway, and a local bluegrass jam session. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out our photo essay that goes along with this episode and previews of episodes to come and more. All right, I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. See you next week. If we have to sit in traffic, like stand still traffic again, I'm gonna die. We are watching the progress. We are running of away from Florence right now. So we could be storm chasers. The sun is rising. It's beautiful. It's uh, hard not to have a full heart when the sky is this blue. Harrison, you have your mic voice on. <laughs> <laughs> Say what you just said, Harrison. <laughs> well, I could just like recreate it. In 900 feet. Turn right to merge onto I-40 East toward yep. Knoxville. Got a chicken resting on my arm right now. It was like wobbling. <laughs>